Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues critical to the health of the American West. West Obsessed is a collaboration between High Country News and KVNF Community Radio in Paonia, Colorado. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the opioid epidemic and the way it has taken hold in the rural West. I'm Kate Schimmel, digital editor for High Country News. I'm here with Paige Blankenbuehler, our assistant editor, who reported on how pain pill abuse and heroin use has swept the small former coal mining town of Craig, Colorado. Hi, Paige. Hi, Kate. I'm also here with Brian Calvert, managing editor of High Country News and the usual host of West Obsessed and the editor of this story. Hi, Kate. I think it's about 20 minutes ago we put the finishing touches on the latest issue of the magazine. The cover story is about Craig, a down-on-its-luck town, now dealing with an overwhelming increase in opioid abuse and addiction. This town is in a really tangled situation where well-intentioned policies to end pain pill abuse have led to more people turning to heroin, of all things. Uh, I wanted to start off, um, I realize many people may know this, but I wanted to give you have you give us a grounder page what exactly are opioids and why are pain pills related to heroin yeah it's a it's a good question and at the very basic level opiates opioids they all derive from opium from poppies heroin is a derivative of poppies um so these are really powerful pain medications that certainly have a, a role and very good purpose in our society, but for the longest time they were reserved for people who had extreme pain or cancer. Um, so we'll get into this a little bit later, but at the very basic level, at the chemical level, pain pills, whether they're in pill form, they're coming from your dentist, or you're on the street and you're looking for heroin, the high, the the result of taking those substances is similar in a very, very scary way. Brian, could you tell us a little bit about what opioid, opioid use looks like in the West right now? Like, How bad is this epidemic? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, the reason we wanted to do this story is that it's an ongoing national story uh, that has a lot of big surprises in it um, uh, in terms of rural areas and um, the, the users of these drugs. Um, Basically, you know, we have latest data from Centers for Disease Control. Um, overdose deaths nationwide tripled uh, in the United States between 1999 and 2014. Um, a lot of those happened in uh, white rural areas. Uh, I think more than 10,000 people died of overdoses uh, who were white compared to maybe 800 African-Americans in 2015. Uh, it's a strange problem that flew under the radar for a long time. Um, and opioid use has been reported on more and more, I think, in the national news. Uh, but still, you know, in 2014, 61% of more than 47,000 overdose, de overdose deaths um, involved an opioid. So these are painkillers that were, um, yeah, they were at first derived from uh, opiates like uh, the, the poppy, uh, kind of based on, you know, these sort of um, you know, really strong painkillers. Then they went into a sort of uh, pharmaceutical stage where uh, prescription pills became this sort of painkiller of choice. Um, and also that coincided with the way that doctors thought about pain. 
kind of starting from the late 1990s. Can, can you talk a little <clears throat> bit more about that? Yeah. So basically, uh, pain itself became something to manage for doctors, to think about how do we manage pain rather than just a, a disease, we need to manage pain. Uh, so that sort of opened this uh, opportunity for pharmaceutical companies to just make straight painkillers as something that could just be prescribed to manage pain. So like chronic pain as its own disease or something that doctors should treat directly. Well, not- and it's not quite that simple either. So there was um, this paradigm shift that was going on in the 1990s as well where – and pain is very subjective, by the way. So it's anything from like you scraped your knee and it's just a little bit of bit sore after that and you have a bruise or you have a minor headache that just comes at the same time every day or whatever it is. So in the mid-1990s, the American Pain Society urged doctors to add pain as this fifth vital sign. So when you go to the doctor, um, you get weighed, your height's taken, and then they ask you on a scale from 1 to 10, how much pain are you in? And that was something new that really shifted the way our country thought about pain. Right. So then it's sort of these prescription painkillers became, uh, it just kind of blew up. It became a huge industry. Um, And now, you know, the number of subscriptions are just huge. So uh, in Western states, uh, we have data from the Centers for Disease Control from 2015. Um, The number of opioid prescriptions per 100 people, so for every 100 people in each of these states, this is the number of prescriptions. In Alaska, there are 71 opioid prescriptions per 100 people in the state. And that's not even the highest one. Arizona, there are 95. In Oregon, 95. In Utah, 95. So there's almost one opioid prescription per person in some of these states. Uh, the lowest, the, you know, the winners here are uh, Alaska, California, Colorado, and Wyoming with a um, mere 71 opioid prescriptions per 100 people in that state. So this stuff is wide, widely and easily available from your doctor. Is it common to have more than one prescription per person? Um, unfortunately, yes. And things are starting to catch up to this. There's been regulations that have put into place after... Um, We started realizing the prevalence of these painkillers, but I mean, think about you are an athlete in high school and you like sprain your ankle or you have whatever injury you might have, it's very likely you'd get on an opiate. If you go to a dentist and you get a cavity or you get a cavity filled or a tooth pulled or something like that, it's very likely you're on an opiate. And the reason that that is, you know, the reason those numbers are scary is because those are highly addictive? Um, yes, unfortunately. So they're, to back up just a little bit, doctors don't necessarily view these drugs as addictive necessarily. They viewed them for the longest time as the best available tool to treat someone's pain. So this addiction has kind of been an afterthought. And now, just in the last couple of years, everyone's kind of taken a breather and, and said, oh my gosh, like, look at this huge problem that suddenly emerged, but there's been a lot that's leading up to this. And it really was at the core, like these opiates flooded the market, several different types, several different companies manufacturing them, and they became the best possible thing that you could give someone, but they are addictive. 
Right. And that's not even the story that we end up telling right. out of Craig, Colorado, <laughs> because that's just like the beginning of the story. Because right. what has happened is, you know, the opioid epidemic is widely known. It's been researched, uh, you know, that's been responded to. Right. Uh, it's been uh, policymakers have responded right. to it. The reason we went to Craig was because a crackdown on opioids Mm-hmm. And what is called a pill mill or a like a pain management clinic that opened there, and Paige will talk about it in a second. <laughs> the crackdown itself created a huge problem for the town because now you had a bunch of opioid addicts running around with no opioids, with no prescriptions to get their hands on, but possibly heroin or meth or something else. So you get these sort of like polydrug or sort of cocktail drug users. It's just a problem that just blew up because of a crackdown. And that's what Craig's dealing with. Yeah, I think that's a great transition into exactly what I was going to ask about next, because it just laid everything we talked about is the groundwork. And Craig was sort of dealing with that at some level. I wanted to talk a little bit about Craig specifically. Paige, could you just introduce us to Craig the town? Sure. Um, So Craig is in the far corner of northwest Colorado in Moffat County. And it's really where a lot of Western issues converge. Um, There's a lot of sagebrush, steppe country, conservation movements, but also this extractive industry that is declining. That's taken a huge, huge hit in the last couple of years. When you go to Craig, it's a harsh landscape. You're surrounded by beautiful mountains, but it's it's frigid in the winter. It's it's very cold. It looks like a desert, but you're you're in the mountains and you're just on the foothills of of um of Craig in in Northwest Colorado, you go 40 miles down the road and you're in a completely different universe in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, this affluent ski community. So Craig is just um opposite of that in every possible way. It's a really blue collar community, very conservative, used to having the spoils of an extractive industry with a coal mine there in town that supplied a lot of jobs and and made people wealthy there. And now that's going away. In your feature, you describe how proud people still are of this town um, and how connected people still feel to this town. I I was struck by how aware the people you talked to were of the challenges of the town. And yet, and into that came Joel Miller, right? And and that was in 2006? Um, So he was there before, but he opened up his own private clinic in 2006. So can you tell us a little bit about Miller's clinic? Um, Sure. So Miller's backstory here, this is a guy that was born in Orange, Texas, practiced medicine in Florida and Boulder, and finally made his way to Craig, Colorado, because he had this dream to practice rural medicine and treat people in small communities. So he arrives in Craig and he's working at the flagship hospital there for five years before he decides to finally go off on his own. Um, So in 2006, he opens High Country Medical. And this is just um, a general practice private clinic, but um, people flock to this place for treatment of pain. Yeah, so there's this really complicated guy uh, who eventually ends up in prison uh, and is and talks to Paige from prison. So we have in the story uh, a, a guy who opens a pain clinic and sort of opens this problem in Craig. But he's then he, he gets arrested and goes on trial. And this is a year-long reporting project that for Paige. So it's taken like a very long time. And throughout this, is, this 
this um, doctor has been arrested, incarcerated, and he goes through his trial. But one of the things he tells Page is that, uh, you know, he writes in this letter, the number one reason people seek medical care is pain. Some people just want to be normal, but a lot of people want to be beyond normal. So you have a, a guy with a medical philosophy that sort of comes into town. He wants to make people beyond normal. And he does that through prescriptions. He makes house calls, weekends, nights. He's really dedicated to, like, getting these people their pills uh, and eventually just gets busted. But uh, the reason we sent Paige up there was not necessarily because of him. It's just she found out about him later. But I, I thought, you know, it's just like a fascinating sort of reporting project. Um, and Paige, why don't, you know, <laughs> you could tell us a little bit about just going up there. Because you know, Paige went through an entire sort of – underworld in a rural coal town basically to get this story i, I don't know i talked to dozens of people dozens of people um and and, and police and stuff so yeah just, yeah i mean what, sort of when did you first go so yeah the first time i ever went to craig for this project was march of 2016 um so that was nearly a year ago and uh, leading up to that, I was calling around and trying to figure out what the story was in Craig. So we finally decided to go there because of a couple reasons. Um, and one of those reasons is because we knew this town was grappling with this this new crisis that was shifting and morphing in really interesting ways. So I went there to figure out exactly how that was happening. Um, and one of the first things that people told me there um, was about High Country Medical and Dr. Miller and this guy really um, stressed the resources of law enforcement there for several, several years. And how that began is he he came into this town and opened up a private practice. And he was over-prescribing many people um, pain medication. Um, so law enforcement had caught on to this. And, and when I was reporting in Craig, I talked to all kinds of different people, spent a lot of time with the local law enforcement and talked to to local users, met people who had um, graduated from pills to heroin or were abusing things like methamphetamine. Um, when I came back to Paonia to kind of digest what I'd found out there, I tried to get a hold of Dr. Miller. And I knew that he was um, on trial for for this case for misprescribing people. Um, two of his patients actually died. So this was a really interesting case that hadn't been tried this way. Um, and we can get to more about how that conviction came down later. But I reached out to some of his former patients and advocates because what happened when this clinic closed, there was a, a group of people in Craig that really came out of the woodwork and fought for Dr. Miller. And these are his patients. There were there were t-shirts. There was a Facebook group. I mean, everyone just rallied around this guy. Um, so it wasn't that hard to get a hold of him, actually. And going down that avenue... Um, Dr. Miller eventually called me from prison. So I was fielding these phone calls in the office and putting in the, the business credit card for the, the charges on the, these calls. And um, so I talked to Dr. Miller over the co course of several months um, through phone calls and um, through several letters that he sent me. Yeah, it was fascinating. So Paige and I share an office and I would hear these calls that were just so out of our ordinary <laughs> day-to-day uh, -day life. Um, but I, I wanted you to talk a little bit about this underworld that you ended up in. Um, so could you tell me a little bit about what opioid abuse and heroin use and these poly drug users were like? Like, 
one of the things that stood out to me most was this idea of a Skittle party. Could could you talk about that a little bit? What sure. is a Skittle party? <laughs> yeah, this is um probably one of the most egregious things that um, law enforcement and, and people told me in town. But uh, to answer your last question there about what in the world is a Skittle party, I mean, I'm sure you can imagine, but it's where high school kids pillage their parents' medicine cabinets, bring these par- these pills to a party, and put them in like a community bowl. That's how law enforcement described this to me. Um, I never saw this firsthand, but um, this epidemic is not just impacting people who... Uh, it's impacting a lot of different people. And a branch off of that is kids have access to the prevalence of these opiates because they're in their medicine cabinets and in their parents' medicine cabinets. So um, when I first heard that, I was like, oh my gosh, like the impact of this is is pretty crazy. Like high school kids are abusing these drugs. Yeah, and again, this is, you know, not necessarily anything new, but the reason that we wanted to tell the story from Craig was that it's a small town with very limited resources uh, in a uh, different environment, uh, an urban environment or a more affluent environment, there are places to go. There's there's rehab and detox and all kinds of different things. Um, Paige, you did a thing in your story where you described what it would be like if you were an addict looking for help. And, you know, th- I thought that was v- a very interesting problem. If you're just joining us now, you're listening to West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News discuss issues important to the American West. I'm Kate Schimmel, the digital editor of the magazine. I'm here with Brian Calvert, managing editor of the magazine and editor of a story on how an opioid epidemic morphed um, in the small town of Craig, Colorado. I'm also here with Paige Blankenbuehler, who wrote the story. We were just starting to talk about this really incredible reporting journey that that Paige went on. Paige, (laughs) you were trying to see or you were trying to find support groups in this town of of very few people for people dealing with opioid abuse. What did you find as you in your reporting process looked for support groups? Yeah, so I kind of approached this in the way that someone might approach it if they were trying to find help, if they were addicted to something and trying to to get out of that situation. And keep in mind, I mean, it's, it's totally different when you're a reporter of a story and you have a car and a cell phone and you're trying to find a support group. Um, if you're an addict, you might not even have those things. But when I went to Craig and I'm calling these numbers that are listed online or in the phone book for, for groups like Narcotics Anonymous, calling those numbers, um, I was met with uh, dial tones, lapsed numbers, screeching tones, like just that horrible thing that happens to you when you are just, you're trying to find something and you can't find it. Um, Some of the people I talked to had been involved with the local Narcotics Anonymous, but had since moved. So basically, all of the information that I could find easily available to people had lapsed. Um, So what I ended up doing was kind of this goose chase through Craig when I was reporting there. Um, I went to local law enforcement trying to find Uh, where things were listed. I went to um, a halfway house to see what they might tell me. And it was really hard to actually find like a time and a place. Like, where can I go if I want to to get over my addiction? Um, So finally, what I did is I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous group. And this woman 
connected me to a woman who ran the town's one and only Narcotics Anonymous group. And that meant once a week. So would you say that your experience was probably common among addicts? Like if you had been an addict, would that have been close to their experience? Um, <clears throat> it's hard to say. So what I figured out through that experience and talking to people that I eventually met there is that it works much more by word of mouth. Um, if you're in this sort of underworld and you have friends that are, are in this, I mean, people are in and out of rehabs. They're going to different places to seek help, and they're kind of in and out of these groups as well. So I think for that circle of people, um, it might actually be easier or just, yeah, if you're an outsider coming in, word of mouth is not something you tap into right away. So one of the main people you talked to, Josh Flaherty? Flaherty. Flaherty. Mm-hmm. Um talked about how challenging it was to get clean in a rural community. Could you could you talk a little bit about what that experience is like? Um, I met Josh when I went to the Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Um, a little backstory on that. I I went to the meeting as if I were an addict. You know, I sat through it and I was I was quiet, but I introduced myself at the beginning as a journalist working on a story and just open to hearing other people's stories and, and their experiences in this and trying to to tell those stories. Um, so at the very end of this meeting, Josh Flaherty, who is this 29-year-old, um, this 29-year-old dark-haired guy, approached me at the end of the meeting and said he was ready to tell his story because he's ready to get clean. Um, but in very short order, he also admitted to me that he had used just the day before. So this is a guy who's really like teetering on the line between sobriety and, and relapsing or active addiction. And and what was it like for him as as he was struggling to get clean? Well, so he's been on a pretty long road with his addiction, and um, he's relapsed several times. But the latest impetus for, for his recovery has been some legal trouble. So he's facing this crossroads where he almost doesn't have much of a choice. Um, but even then, it's been really difficult for him. Um, he's been using several drugs for many years. He's on a dozen different prescriptions for, for mental disorders. And he started this whole path when he was given a prescription opiate for um, slip disc in his back. So um, now that he's trying to get clean, there's not a local rehab center in Craig, and there's no detox facility either. If you're in active addiction for several years, this isn't just something you can stop and take a deep breath and take a bubble bath or something so there's not a lot of places for him to to like jump into this um he also he doesn't have a car he doesn't have a cell phone he did try and go to a rehab this new facility in nearby steamboat springs but because of his legal trouble they wouldn't admit him so that's something that's pretty common with addicts is because of the lives they're living in the company that they keep they they get into legal trouble and they face charges for things that they they do either for those addictions or because of them. Um, and that's what happened with Josh. He couldn't get into rehab because of his criminal charges. Yeah. So, you know, what we found in Craig was that um, uh, this sort of pill mill opened and then the opioid epidemic sort of swept in. Uh, and then we wanted to try to figure out what the relationship was to this heroin use that uh, Page was finding. Uh, so I think, you know, Paige did a really good job of getting into some research here. Um, there's a guy that she talked to. His name was Ted Cicero. He's a researcher at Washington University in St. Louis. 
Um, and in 2014, he did a study with the uh, substance use and health disparities um, out of Nova's Southeastern University. Um, they wanted to study the demographic shift of, of heroin users. Uh, so they kind of went through this long process and, and did a, a survey, and, and they found some people. Um, there were sort of like 9,000 recovering opioid addicts that completed the survey. Uh, nearly 3,000 of them reported heroin as their drug of choice. Uh, he focused in on uh, 54 people who responded that they would uh, have, take more survey, more specific survey questions. And so what he found was that um, people basically, once they were addicted to opioids, uh, they would move to heroin. So out of those 9,000 respondents, um, 88 of the heroin users said that they started in the 60s, but then more than 1,600 said they took up the drug after uh, the year 2000. So of those 1,600 people, in other words, people who are like more modern sort of heroin users that didn't in that first wave, they weren't part of that first wave, 94% reported that their first opioid use came through prescription pills. So in other words, there's this really direct link between the opioid epidemic and this like new group of, of heroin users, which I thought was, was very interesting. And that's sort of how it played out in the life of um, Josh Flaherty and, and some other people. That, I was shocked to, to, to learn that. So people like Josh move from prescription pills to heroin. For it's more like he just kind of did a whole mix. Yeah, and that like that taps into what happens in a rural community. So <laughs> it's not like there's all this heroin just pouring into Craig, Colorado now. There's definitely more coming there because there's suddenly this demand for it. But because there aren't as many people and it takes longer for drugs to get there. There's a multitude of drugs coming in. So someone who's been addicted to pills might prefer heroin because it's a similar high. But if all they can find is methamphetamine at that moment, that's probably what they're going to do. And that's what they're seeing in Craig is people just poly drug users. They're taking a cocktail of things and it all goes down to pain. (laughs) pain in your heart or pain in your mind or pain in your body and it might start with a pill with pain in your body but that that is a path that some people take yeah or sort of self-medication in a way right Um, but yeah and then the other part of that is when you have an environment where people can't necessarily get the drug of choice and they start um cocktailing their drugs then you get into an overdose problem right yeah and we have time for just one more question and and i wanted to ask in our last few minutes here, about what that does to law enforcement. What has law enforcement in Craig done to respond to this epidemic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to talk about with this. And um, inevitably, you arrive at like how many resources a town has to deal with this kind of problem, especially when they're, they're caught um, pretty unaware that it's happening. I mean, it took Craig a long time to realize that it even had a pill problem. And then they, they tried to get that under control. And once they felt like they got that under control, now they have all these other things that they're trying to control. Um, so in Craig, law enforcement's budgets are actually declining. So crime rates are increasing. Drug crime rates are increasing. And a higher percentage of those are related to heroin. Um, so Craig Police does not know how to deal with this this new heroin problem that's really just showed up in the last two or three years. Um, But some things that they are doing, despite dwindling budgets, is um, making more use of their canine unit. Um, So they're putting more money into into drug dogs that can sniff out these drugs on the street. 
Um, and what happens too with few resources for people um, in a community like Craig, when there's not rehab facilities, what happens is people will get arrested and that is like their first respite of sobriety. It's not easy to get into a rehab because you have to leave the community. But if you get arrested for shoplifting, then you're you're in jail and suddenly you're kind of forced to get clean. As a result, um, more pe- that's happening to more people. And Craig is having to expand its jail to hold people who are there more increasingly for drug-related crimes. And that stresses an already stressed police force. Yeah, I think the bottom line is a community needs to recognize that it has a problem get in front of it and fund their law enforcement or, or at least understand that they need to a- attack what is a very uh, unique problem to a rural community. So I think it takes a little bit of sort of fessing up that, that you have this, this problem and then, you know, actuating that into a budget process where law enforcement can um, actually uh, approach the problem. Which is a challenge in rural communities where you have dwindling population, dwindling tax base, uh, dwindling money to deal with a growing problem. Um, and treatments for addiction, not just law enforcement. Well, on that note, uh, <laughs> quite the tangle that many rural Western towns are facing. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Paige and Brian. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. Uh, that's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us and for tuning in. If you want to learn more about the op- opioid epidemic in the West or read more of Paige's fantastic coverage, she's been on this for a year, you can visit High Country News website at hcn.org. Uh, there's lots more to explore there. And if you want to join the conversation from this broadcast, you can go to kvnf.org. Uh, You've been listening to West Obsessed, which is a collaboration between High Country News and KVNF Community Radio in Paonia. Thanks, guys. (laughs) 